Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Sourcing Journal Radio, our weekly check-in with apparel insiders and thought leaders, which spotlights a variety of topics currently driving change in the market. This podcast series is made possible by Cotton Incorporated, a not-for-profit company funded by U.S. cotton producers and importers whose mission is to increase the demand and profitability of cotton. Discover what cotton can do. The apparel supply chain is set for a drastic change over the next 10 years, and companies that can't keep up will be jostled out of position. I am Edward Hertzman, founder and president of Sourcing Journal, and on today's episode, you will hear a discussion about how the industry is evolving and the ways in which technology could foster a new world order in the global apparel landscape. Carl Hendrick Magnus, partner and co-lead of McKinsey and Company's apparel, fashion, and luxury practice in Europe, will kick things off discussing findings from the company's recent report titled, The Future of Apparel Production, Nearshoring, Automation, and Sustainability, which includes survey input from sourcing journal readers. He will then be joined by Colin Brown, Chief Supply Chain Officer at Under Armour, Ramesh Fernando, CEO of Mass USA, and Erica Swan, Vice President of Product Operations at Reebok. Together, the group provided insight into what's next for the apparel industry at the 2018 Sourcing Journal Summit in New York. Thank you, Edward. Uh, very, very happy and very excited to be here today and, and launch the report. Uh, is apparel manufacturing coming home? Uh, I would love to invite you for the next 15, 20 minutes to jointly take a look into the admittedly not fully predictable future, um, but more long-term future, what's going to change to the face of our industry? Is the economics for nearshoring going to mature in a way that we're going to really see a shift towards new geographies? What's automation going to further do in this game in terms of changing, changing those economics and changing the processes? Um, and uh, I would love to hopefully leave you after those, that, that speech and the panel that we have afterwards with a couple of thought, thought starters and discussion starters around this more long-term topic that might not always be on the agenda of the day-to-day um, mayhem of, 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 of sourcing and, and supply chain uh, management. But before we look into the long-term future in 2020, I would love to ground us in what's happening in our industry today. Uh, at McKinsey, we have a um, database which we call the Global Fashion Index, where we track the performance of the top 500 companies in our, our sector. Um, and what this tells us is that the gap between the top performers and the laggers is increasingly widening. So, if we look at this, what happened in the last 10 years, usually the top 20% of the industry were roughly generating 100% of the economic profit. And then the bottom part was eating up 
what was generated by the, the belly of the market. More recently, what we're seeing is that the top ones are getting better and better and better, are actually generating 150% of the entire economic profit of this industry, while an increasingly struggling lower part, the bottom 20%, are actually destroying 50% of the value that's actually generated by those, those top 20%. Um, and uh, by the way, I see a lot of uh, uh, mobile phones going up. All of this is in the report that's going to be launched today, so uh, I'll, I'll share the link in a, in a second uh, to also download it, but happy to, to take all the pictures. Um, but, so what's, what's behind this is, of course, a bunch of seismic shifts that most of you are aware of. We just heard some of them on the consumer side. The one to call out probably is the quest to get more reactive, more faster, the need for speed, as most of us call it, um, and, uh, and the, the, the mandate to develop a more demand-oriented supply chain that comes with it. Uh, it's driven by, uh, as also Edward said in his, his introduction, new companies, the Boohoo's and the Zara's, showing how with small batches, extremely ultra-fast supply chains, they can actually be much more reactive than the bunch of our industry that is still uh, working on a very linear, large bulk order process, and hence is generating the painful over inventories that we've all felt in the last couple of seasons. So we asked ourselves in the report, how does this actually change the face of the industry in the future? Um, and, and what's happening out there? We launched uh, a piece of work looking into new shoring, automation, uh, and the impact on sustainability. Um, and for example, one of the supporting facts in this was also a survey that we launched with the help of the sourcing journal. Uh, many of you participated in that. Uh, we're 200 sourcing executives, a lot of them in the room today. I'll also go through and, and play back some of your own views in, in this presentation. But now let's go into some of the content. Um, on nearshoring, on the industry has been on a, on a very successful move in offshoring the production of the last decade to Asia and uh, to Asian markets. And this was a, a tremendous source of value generation. Nevertheless, the 30-day lead time from China to uh, uh, US, Europe are, of course, eliminating some of the changes, uh, the, the change, some of the opportunities for flexibility, for differentiation. And in addition, the economical advantage is coming to an end, or at least going down. China used to be one-tenth of the US labor cost, now it's one-third. In the Europe, the difference is still a bit bigger, but overall, it's, it's coming down. So it's not surprising then when we ask those 200 executives that they believe by 2025 there is a significant step change in reassuring going to happen. Over 70%, 80% uh, believe that by 2025 we're going to have a massive increase of, of nearshoring and production being on faster uh, cycles than either through nearshore or some of this through air freighting. Um, this is further supported by a surge in Asian demand, of course, that's happening. Uh, 6% is the growth rate of the apparel industry in Asia, and uh, fast forwarding that, that will mean Asia will meet 40% of the global uh, apparel consumption in 2025. So there is a need to not only change for speed, but also a need to change for purely capacity um, uh, uh, access. And lastly, the turmoil of political uh, discussions around trade. 
further supports this, as everyone agrees in the, in the survey, that we will have a rise of trade and duties as a key economic factor in sourcing economics in the future, uh, further supporting uh, nearshoring. Not surprisingly, the sentiments that we picked up in the survey is also supported by nearshoring starting to add up, as in economically. Uh, uh, nearshoring and, and onshoring, actually. If we take, for example, a denim production and a US denim producer who would change an onshore or nearshore a piece of uh, denim production that's currently in China or in Bangladesh to Mexico or to the US, the economics, given the labor cost disadvantage uh, diminishing, are actually starting to make sense. So in Mexico, margins can actually be improved or maintained already today, purely from a landing cost perspective, by uh, nearshoring that, that denim production. We would always kind of say that it's not only the, la the landing cost perspective, there's in addition um, the need to look at the full product profitability. So adding on top of this very narrow landed cost view, which is driven by duties and, and, and freight, a value of speed, the, the, the value that faster delivery will add to your uh, full price sales through, this equation will further change. So for example, on a purely landed cost perspective, onshoring to the US does not yet make sense. If you then add only a five percentage point improvement in full price sales, which is fully thinkable by having a much faster, uh, faster lead time, the onshoring to the US would even then make sense. So it's only a need for five percentage points of, um, of full price sales that's needed. However, it's not only the economical advantages, there are distinct challenges that are currently the barriers to nearshoring that most of you are aware. The nearshore markets are fundamentally differently set up uh, in, in the way they are structured, mainly from a capacity uh, perspective, but also, and probably most importantly, from a fabric access. Fabric ingredients, raw materials are simply not uh, available to the tier one manufacturing and the CMT manufacturing in nearshore industries as they are today. Um, this requires uh, building up yarn spinning, building up uh, mills is a long-term play that requires significant investment. So hence this is, uh, in our view, one of the key bottlenecks for a step change in nearshoring. And then again, not surprising, when asked in the survey, the executives very much agree, and you guys very much agree, that 80% believe this needs to be tackled through a clustering, a cluster-based approach in, in, in helping nearshore come together, whether it's in Eastern Europe, whether it's in Mexico, whether it's in North Africa. Um, there is some confidence that fabric production will move the CMT production, but as you can see, it's not as straightforward, and uh, this will be one of the key challenges in the industry. And lastly, uh, there's a strong discussion that we're having with uh, a lot of our clients. Does this now require brands to step in and actually be at the forefront of developing this capacity and this capability? The, 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 the audience here and the, the survey participants are split, and, and I think it's the jury out who will actually take the step in uh, developing the, the required infrastructure and capabilities that are needed uh, to really drive this. Overall, of course, the uh, perspective we've just looked at was purely from a 
nearshoring out of the current landed cost perspective. Now, if we overlay this with the advantages of automation, it gets really exciting and interesting. Uh, how will, will the, 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 the emerging technology change those economics and, and further change the, the, the speed of this? Um, the apparel industry today is very much lagging other industries. So if we look into uh, this chart shows the installed base of industrial robots in various industries. And uh, the, the automotive industry, as an example, has seven times the, the scale of, of robots in play today than, than the apparel industry. And we found three main reasons for that. Number one is the industry has very much been focused on low-cost country sourcing uh, with an optimization driven by some new programs uh, a strong focus on compliance, but it hasn't been a strategic uh, focus of the industry as yet. Secondly, the pure nature of the garments, handling soft garments in automation, is a technical challenge that uh, makes the technological development much more difficult, and the low price points of the garments makes the investment cases for automation in our industry much more difficult. And the third reason is the pure fragmented nature of our industry especially in the apparel space, a bit less so in the, in the, in the footwear space, makes uh, the, the, um, the, 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 the large players that need to come to forward to actually take those uh, necessary investments uh, more, more difficult. Now, what we did is we partnered with the um, Institute for, for Textile Technology of the University of Aachen, which is one of the most renowned institutes for uh, automation and digitization in the apparel production space, and we looked at all the technology in the apparel production that's currently at play or somewhere at the horizon along the entire uh, CMT process. And what we did is we calculated what will be the impact of those technologies on various garment types in terms of labor minutes, efficiencies, uh, to actually have a prediction of what's going to happen. Using again the, the denim example that we had, showing you, you know, just how different the, the, the current state of play is. There are some uh, parts of the process that already have a good established installed base of technologies uh, in them. There are other parts in the, in, the, in the process where some of you, some of the players in the room, some others are starting to install new automation technologies and experimenting uh, with things. And there are frankly other areas in the case of, of, uh, of the denim, automated washing, loading, um, other fabric handling pro uh, procedures that are currently being discussed, but simply not in play today. All of this leads to a quite heterogeneous uh, field to predict the future, but it clearly shows that the individual steps along the CMT process are very, very different in terms of how easy they are to automate, and suing as probably not surprising, is in the end the part that will really change the game for most of the governments. And, but, uh, however, at the same time, the hardest one to, to really automate. Um, and that's also the one where then the jury is still out when we talk to, to you and, and to your colleagues uh, whether the technology that are currently on the rise will change things by 40, 50, or uh, 80, 90 percent in terms of uh, labor efficiencies. Taking a view and trying to calculate this through, knowing that suing is over 50% of, of, of the, the data production, I'm just using this example now to, to run through, there is a chance that actually through the, the, the technology that's on the rise, up to 70% of labor time would be reduced with the technology that's currently already installed, or that there is a line of sight that it would be installed by 2025. So this is big. There is a there is a massive uh, step change on the horizon of, 
of bringing down um, uh, labor efficiency. Um, the two scenarios are done by kind of how far will fueling automation go. Translating that again into cost and overlaying the nearshoring equations that we had seen earlier on in the presentation, it becomes apparent that even onshoring to the yes then becomes a real opportunity also economically by 2025, assuming again full, in, uh, full implementation of the automation uh, that's currently out there. So in this example, uh, uh, once fully, fully installed, a denim production in the US at by 2025, if everything gets installed, would be economically viable and more attractive uh, than, than the current uh, production in, in Bangladesh or China. And also Mexico would become competitive versus Bangladesh. Again, then overlaying the impact of speed on chasing sales, improving um, full-price sales through, only adds on top of this equation, and hence um, will lead to an even stronger case for, for automation and, and near onshoring. Now the question becomes, by when will this happen? Uh, the, the, the survey again can help in saying, how does this group feel about it? And uh, what's clear is that around simpler garments, there's a strong conviction that by 2025, there's a chance to actually automate, fully, fully automate a, a significant part of the production with over 80% of labor um, cost uh, impact coming with it. And there's also a strong, uh, strong conviction, 70% of you think that even more complex garments with um, more, more complex silhouettes and um, more co complex production processes would be semi-automated semi at least by, by then. So personally, I think what we're going to see is that in the next five years, a significant increase of semi-automated production uh, enabling later differentiation, later flexibilization of products and differentiation. And then in the next five to 10 years, we're going to uh, see with the, uh, the, the later technologies coming in, a real onshoring and full automation uh, at, uh, at scale. Now, a lot of uh, the discussion with, our, with the executives that we're serving is then around, what does this mean for me? And no consultancy presentation probably without a matrix. Um, so uh, we, we kind of, uh, we would suggest for you to think about this potentially around two axes. What's actually the value of the shorter lead time for you and for your garment types? Think through your basics, think through your more fashionable uh, ranges. And on the other hand, what's the economics of, of nearshoring, which is of course de de uh, determined by labor minutes, specific fabric axis of the products, um, and hence is it actually doable in the foreseeable future? This lays out a landscape uh, to basically say where to get started, what are the garment types, what are the, the categories and segments that actually lend themselves to be at the forefront of this movement and be the cases for early on tests around automation and, and further nearshoring, and where are things uh, are more on the longer term horizon. Again, bringing in an example that we played through with one of our, our clients for, for Wolf and Jersey Tops, what came out for them was that basics with prints and, um, and add-ons were the ones that clearly came out as a priority that they want to invest in semi-automation and, and, and reassuring right now simply because it supports the, the latent differentiation of their business model, while more undifferentiated basics are the ones where a longer-term investment in full automation, at some point, and full um, 
onshoring to Europe and, and, and the US would be the case, but only once all of the technology matures and comes into play. This is only one example, but maybe a, a way to think about it uh, for your for your own assortment around those two axes is what's the value of the of the lead time, what's the value of the speed, and what's the economics uh, as we as we discussed earlier on on uh, nearshoring uh, for for the specific uh, product. Beyond the, the individual garment type, there is also a need to think what are some of the structural changes in the industry. Uh, again, using the survey to go through some of these, there is likely going to be a, a significant consolidation of, of suppliers happening because the, the rise of the global mega suppliers, because the investment needed, the capital expenditures behind some of this are so big that most of the smaller and mid-tier suppliers are simply not able and capable to to fully uh, drive it on their own. Um, this is again a chance for the Asian trailblazers to potentially not only uh, do this for themselves and in their own geographies, but even drive the automation in nearshore and onshore markets. Some of the, the major uh, players are actually thinking uh, this through uh, right now. Uh, in addition, um, there's a question for you and, and, and for the suppliers, how, how to actually gain access to preparatory technology. It's the, 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 the high belief that this won't be that openly uh, available on the market. So uh, intellectual property will become a currency of differentiation in this market. Who is investing and who has access to what kind of captive automation technology and what's your strategy in terms of partnering, in terms of building it on your own in, in driving that. But it will become a major differentiating factor in the industry. And lastly, um, the rise of new business models. If we if we look also into other industries, and we've done that as part of our research, it clearly showed that automation typically evolved in an early stage as an efficiency game, and then over time became a new business model enabling game. And I think the same thing will be will potentially happening in, in the apparel space, where it's currently largely discussed from, a, from an efficiency in automation, but then really enabling uh, on-demand production and, and uh, newer business models. Coming to an end, um, I would love to leave you with a couple of maybe personal thoughts how to get started and, and what to make out of all of this. I think the first one is uh, trying to add some value, some, some numbers and some quantitative uh, elements uh, against this, uh, the impact and the value of speed of nearshoring of automation for you, for your company, and for your individual garment types. It's back to what Edward said in this uh, introduction. It requires a much more analytical approach and a much more smart sourcing way of approach of understanding what is the production cost, what is the automation impact for a certain garment in a certain geography and requires the, the capability to actually think that through. But on the other hand, it will help you create a business case that's needed to mobilize the organization behind the, the pilots and tests and the roadmap behind it. Secondly, uh, it's around um, starting to develop skills and capabilities. The, the opportunity of automation and the more demand based supply chain is huge, but requires a very, very different mindset than the historical uh, FOB optimization, finding the next cheapest needle mindset uh, that Edward was describing. It's, it's around customer orientation, it's about demand um, orientation, and starting that journey of building that mindset and capabilities in your sourcing teams, in your supply chain teams, is something uh, we believe needs to be started uh, right away. The third one to mention 
is what's your strategy in developing partnerships and ecosystems around this? Neither the brands nor the suppliers are necessarily the best position to develop these technologies on their own. Developing your strategy to actually have proprietary access to intellectual property uh, is going to be important. Some uh, players are using very innovative partnerships with venture capital firms, with PE funds to do this, but what's uh, your way of looking at this? And lastly, I would call it getting off the balcony and onto the dance floor and starting to test in the very near term, one to two years. Um, and and uh, that's uh, in an agile way, changing uh, course, scaling up. Overall, I think it's super exciting times in the, in the apparel supply chain. Over the last couple of years, this was rarely a CEO agenda topic. Usually, we had to deliver efficiency improvements year to year, um, and then it just had to work. These disruptions that we're seeing are so profound that they will lead to competitive advantages that are very difficult to uh, mimic or to, to, to capture for others. And hence, we'll make this a very strategic topic, a CEO agenda topic, uh, which makes a, a truly, a truly exciting things. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll uh, hand over to, to Edward to introduce the panel. And of course, given the very short time that we had, this was only a fraction of our uh, report. Um, please uh, download it if you are interested to read more. It's uh, on the Sourcing Journal website today, as well as from today on the, on the McKinsey.com website. Um, and of course, very happy to answer any questions. Thank you very much. All right, so what you shared surely sounds like a lot of massive changes are ahead. And we haven't even talked about other areas um, like digitalization of the supply chain. But, but let's turn to reality for a second. How much does everyone on the panel actually see these changes impacting the industry in the next year or so? Colin, you wanna, you wanna start? <clears throat> sure, happy to. Um, it's gonna take a while. Uh, you know, I'm not a believer in the whole uh, rainbows and unicorns kind of effect of this. It's not all gonna change overnight. Um, I think it's, it's, it's going to happen, I think partly because of the way in which the industry is evolving, um, but at the same time I don't think it's going to be a complete either or shift, I think it's going to be a combination of both, I don't think it has to be one thing or the other. Uh, at the same time I think one of the, the, the things that you kind of call out in your report, but I think it's really important to kind of realise is kind of what does that mean, how is it, how is it going to evolve for our tier 2 suppliers? I like the old Field of Dreams movie, if you haven't seen it with Kevin Costner, when he builds this baseball field and if you build it, they will come. Well, when they come, then I'll build it. So what am I going to do with my tier two suppliers? They're going to come first and then we're going to build it or are we going to build it and then our tier two suppliers? And yeah, I think figuring out how we engage our tier two suppliers is really important because over 50% of our cost is tier two suppliers. And if we don't get that bit right, we don't figure out how to engage those guys in that conversation then that's going to be really difficult for us to actually make that shift. Certainly from an underarmor point of view, because of the specialized materials we use in much of our power, unless we have really good tier two suppliers within region, it becomes really difficult to do that. Sure. Um, so um, I think we've started seeing some of these shifts already in some ways. Um, you know, some of the, uh, like what Hendrik put, the trailblazers, uh, you know, MAS as a company, we've already, established ourselves on shore and in neutral locations um, already. Um, 
But I don't think the shift is going to happen uh, overnight. It's going to take some time. Uh, there's a lot of things that needs to come together in order to make this uh, happen. Um, but if you consider some of the brands that we work with, either they're already doing their own investigations into unlocking the potentials of the region or combining um, you know, their efforts with us and uh, you know, working together to try and see where their opportunities are. So in the next year or so, we may not see a significant change, but um, I think in the next two to three years, we may start seeing a significant shift uh, happen. Yeah, so I'm, I'm in between what the two gentlemen actually said. So on the one hand, um, it's going to take a while, but if you like, if you ask me, will it happen? I'm almost confused, and I say, well, it's already happening. It almost feels like a lot of what I've heard from Hendrik is something we've been talking the last five years about. So it's taking a long time. Um, the approach, you see, the different streams have different speed. Nearshoring is exactly what Carlin said. We have the infrastructure problems in near the shore. Um, and the second piece is around automation, where I feel automation in Asia is actually picking up a lot of speed. And that's something that we're going to see really fast. <laughs> um, and then how do you define automation? And for me, then, the new um, frontier is almost digitalization. And that goes back to the conversation we had early in the morning about data and data exchange. Um, and how can I really get faster by exchanging my, like a brand's consumer data with tier ones and somehow build the trust between tier ones and tier twos to actually transfer that data to? Because data is not a PO, it's just a forecast. So, how can we really action it and how can I gain speed for my consumers based on it? So, having said this, what approach is everyone taking? With automation, are you looking to lead with initiatives or are you trying to adapt your own technologies with proven ROI? Like you said, there's already technologies that are out there. Oh, well, with, I'm going to agree with Eric here. I think we, we don't own any of our own manufacturing. So as a consequence, we're not really plowing a lot of our own money into developing kind of automated systems of how we should produce a product. We have a, an initiative called The Lighthouse, which is uh, down in Baltimore, where we do have a number of partners that, come, uh, that are basically based at the lighthouse, a number of manufacturing partners and partners that produce different parts of equipment. And, and we work with them to think through how in which we can innovate the product uh, that they can then run through their lines and run through the innovations that we're putting in place with them. But I think, going back to the, the presentation earlier this morning, I think, I think there's even something Erica said. I think there's, there's a huge amount we can just do with the data that we've got now and figuring out how we can unlock that. Um, we own a number of different uh, uh, fitness applications, Map My Run, My Fitness Pal, and, and uh, a number of these different applications. And that gives us this digital handshake with consumers that we've never had before. So we have an, an ongoing relationship with consumers every day, every time they work out. We know what people are doing, and that's allowing us to think very differently about how do we then build our demand model, and how do we then fulfill products which the consumers require. So there's something around uh, called, which I kind of call a frontside flip, from the point of view of how we're thinking about demand and how we're connecting to that demand and therefore how we're linking that back through the supply chain with our partners as we continue to kind of consolidate that down. Because I think much of what you said in the report was exactly spot on and I think that, that kind of relationship of how we connect the, the, that individual relationship with consumers through a process through which we can flip demand and through a process through which we can produce product at the right speed to get to, to the consumer at the right time and the right place. You know, Hendrik, one thing that you didn't mention that I'd be curious to hear about is 
All of this requires major investment, massive, massive investment. And we're still dealing with a lot of margin compression, no matter how you, how you spin it. So who, who responsibility is it? Is it for the factories to invest in this technology? Is it for the brands to invest? Like you said, no one really owns their own factories. So are these micro factories, are these automated factories gonna be built by the brands themselves? Or are we gonna put the onus back onto the factories overseas or you know, close to home and say, hey, you guys have to upgrade your facilities? I know that's off script, sorry. No, no, it's probably not one, one answer. I think what we are at least seeing and, and is, First step, it requires a very different approach to supplier collaboration. I think it's a classic tool. Let me squeeze them as hard as I can on FOB uh, relationship will not really solve the chicken and egg problem of who's actually going to invest here. Uh, it takes a much longer, much deeper uh, relationship to, to, and which is, I think on the footwear side, much more uh, in place already today. On the apparel side, it's, it's starting to emerge, but I think the apparel side will need to follow some of the trailblazing that the industry has seen on the, on the footwear side. Uh, as, as, as point number one and point number two, I think it will also require additional players in there than just the brands and the suppliers. I mentioned this uh, kind of innovative approach where some players are partnering up with VC funds, with private equity funds to think, how do we jointly invest in technology companies Given the whole idea in technology is we can't predict which one is actually going to work out. So we need to invest in 10 to find one or two that are really going to change the needle. And I think there's some very innovative approaches of saying how can we go beyond us, brand and supplier, to actually get other people to the table that actually have stake in the game. So what do you actually think is going to drive? What's going to be the major catalyst to bring manufacturing back home, nearshoring and to the Americas? Well, the main drive right now, I guess, is what um, did Ed say? It? What's happening in DC? Like it's the trade barriers. I think that drive is really what really accelerates all the conversations. Um, the big challenge is really the almost how can we crack the monopoly of tier two supply in this region, and how can we convince almost our Asian partners to invest and get some more competition in so that we really can afford it because the market itself is very competitive, the retail market. The consumer in this region is not willing to, to pay extra for the insurance. So do you agree with the, the, the findings? Do you think there'll be a, a shift over the next five years? Uh... Um, I, I agree that there will be a shift, but I'm knowing the partners in Asia, they're so smart businessmen and they, they know the business almost better, the apparel industry better or the sourcing industry better than in this region, where I feel like they're on their toes and they're investing in automation like crazy. They, they become more competitive that way too, because I think in the report we always compared it to a status quo in Asia, as if Asia wouldn't um, invest. But Asia is going to apply the same automation and then the competitiveness stays between the region. So I think it's not a slam dunk. Uh, I agree with Eric. I mean, even the best laid out plans these days could be Trump. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of emphasis on what's happening in DC in terms of the momentum that has gathered in terms of onshoring and reshoring. Um, but to add to Eric's point, I think another aspect is the whole social media side of things. Um, there's a more conscious uh, consumer out there today who's more conscious of sustainability and, um, you know, awareness of like, you know, what, what apparel do I buy today? So a lot of the brands today um, were presenting all over the world, so I can speak about this. Um, how they might not speed is, uh, you know, just one example is through air freight inputs halfway across the world. 
uh, if you think about you know the amount of uh, carbon footprint that it sort of creates versus uh, you know sourcing from near shore or onshore, enabled by automated manufacturing, um, I think there's a real case for it. Um, but I don't think it's going to go away. But um, you know, th there's a lot of convincing factors out there where the brands are going to start looking at more of um, more of sourcing across different parts of the world for different reasons. I think there's a couple of other things to just think about here. One is the type of business you run from the point of view of whether you're fast fashion or a fast follower, so to speak, or whether you are a brand that's defining the business that you are going to sell. And I think if you're an innovative brand that is thinking about how do you redefine your relationship with your consumers, then the length of your, your initial lead time is kind of irrelevant. You can just take as long as you like, as long as you get the best product with the right materials. And I think that, therefore, the, the need for, for speed kind of shifts. And I think I kind of like the analogy of, you know, I think you've got the speedboat and you've got the super tanker. And you've got high and fast, which is really fast lead, short lead times, higher prices, quicker individually created product, which gets to consumer really quickly. But that doesn't mean we aren't still going to have the opportunity to use a super tanker with kind of long lead times, predictable product that we know everyone's going to want a black tea. We know we can make it in a place where we uh, where we can kind of minimize the cost as much as we possibly can, and we can think about how we flow the product and inventory. So I think it also depends on what kind of business you have and what percentage of your business sits in each, because part of it will be high and fast from the point of view of how do you think of that model, and part of it will be low and slow. I think kind of understanding those two things and the type of business you own is going to be really important. And I think that, that's the bit which will define just how quickly we unlock it. Which, which leads again to most of us would probably agree, oh, our supply chain has already become quite complex and multifaceted over the last decade. I think with what you're describing, that's only going to spur it up significantly more with more sourcing types, with more flow types, with more data-based decisions. What is the right flow? What is the right degree of automation? What's the right sourcing country for this specific flow with this specific product? So the need for managing that complexity with all the capabilities that's behind that will be uh, further increased in, in, based on what you're saying. Right. So you mentioned the word sustainability. So let's pivot a little bit. Looking more closely at sustainability as it becomes increasingly more important in the supply chain, how does sustainability influence your, your uh, current and future sourcing strategies? And how will automation help drive a more circular economy? Erica, you want to start? Oh, I can. It's a difficult question, though. I'm glad you said it earlier. <laughs> um, the um, automation and sustainability, there's the obvious um, idea of does automation enable nearshoring. With nearshoring, I use less fuel to, to get my products to consumers. Um, but then how can it really help the circular economy? I think that's quite, quite curious. So if we were able to return the products that you don't use anymore, and I can actually shred fibers out of it again, and I can make it in the same region into a new product, that would be the, the perfect dream. And I think that's where we have to crack the idea around profitability and the infrastructure in the region. But I think that is, of course, the closer we are with consumers, the more circular the interaction can be. But I'm curious to hear what the others are thinking about. <laughs> I don't have an answer for that one. I, well, we have a, we have a whole panel on this. We are seeing. I mean, also, automation will allow 
uh, less inventory and less waste. So that, that's clearly a major advantage just right off the top. So I think, I mean, I think this, as we approach this in a Kaizen kind of way and we think about how we take, take uh, noise out of the process, it will help us move to a better model. But I'm not sure any of us, I'm not sure if any of us has really defined what that model looks like yet and exactly how to kind of drive commercial value out of it. Uh, I think everyone agrees that it's, it needs to be part of it. Uh, and it's something that I think we're all involved in our own individual kind of tactical ways. But I'm not sure if we, any of us have kind of put that together yet as an overarching kind of business model which kind of comes together. I think it's one of the challenges we're going to Well, let's take sustainability. Let's take automation out of this. Let's just ask the question again as it pertains to sustainability. Let's not go out by the script. <laughs> what is, how are you changing your supply chain today to be more sustainable? I think like so what we're doing in general is that we're believing in partnerships and we're really looking at long-term relationships between tier ones and tier twos. And one of the keys is really um, on the front that waste, how can we reduce waste in the supply chain? How can I have less leftover materials? How can I um, forecast better? And how can I actually use more recycled materials in my supply chain? Like with Freebra and stuff like that. So it, we're like the Adidas group works a lot with um, Parlay, so that's ocean plastics. Um, we're actually going to be 100% recycled polyester by 2023. So there are lots of goals out there that we have to, as a basic expectation for the consumers, we we'll have to do. Um, yeah. I think there's lots of tactical things happening as well. I mean, we we're working very closely with Unify on, on utilizing plastic bottles and a whole range of products that that actually just utilizes that. There's lots of work happening, I think, on the footwear side, but from the point of view of how you take solvents out of the process, how you reduce the overall waste. There's programs we have with regards to bringing product back and actually using it to kind of build basketball courts, grinding it up and building bar. So I think there's lots of individual tactical things happening. Um, the challenge is how you put it together as an infrastructure that kind of actually completely closes the circle. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I think we as an industry still need to kind of figure out. Um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at, um, you know, today, um, cons consumer is pretty much driving the whole system with the conversation. Um, every brand that you can think of has some level of sustainability statement out there that can be zero carbon, you know, whether it's a gigaton project or whether it's a zero carbon mission or uh, any of those things. And we've gone on the journey pretty fast. I mean, I think everybody in the whole supply chain, uh, the brands, the, the manufacturers, the supply chain, everybody has a responsibility and even all of us as consumers have a responsibility for, for a better tomorrow. So as a, as a company, we started way long ago, I mean, almost 10 years ago, we did the first world's first purpose-built manufacturing uh, green plant uh, in Sri Lanka. And since then, we are converting pretty much all of our plants into solar power. We are working on uh, zero emission. Um, we are converting our waste into reusable products. Um, some of the byproducts are being created into bricks that are built to use houses. So there's a lot of work that we are doing as um, as uh, as a responsible supplier. Um, but the initiatives are primarily going to be driven from a brand perspective because uh, they are the face to the consumer. Um, so some, I guess, the way that uh, we see some of the brands partnering with us in some of these initiatives uh, just helps us to accelerate it and give it more of a uh, I guess like a win to um, you know the consumer. Mm -hmm. So one last question quickly, then I want to go to the audience. Um, 
You know, when I opened up today, I, I said that obviously there's a big change in mind shift that's happening, whether it's cultural, uh, there's a lot more entrepreneurial, you know, op, entrepreneurial organizations, you know, coming to be. What strategies are you turning to, to kind of uh, position your company for the future as it applies to the supply chain? Colin, do you want to start? I mean, I think the, I mean, a lot of our strategy is up there, to be frank with you. <laughs> From the point of view of how we're thinking about our supply chain, I mean, it, I, I do think, and, and we talked about it earlier, it was mentioned earlier, but I think we're at a point where supply chain actually is now becoming a strategic advantage. It's no longer just the, the keeping the lights on. It's no longer the bottom part of the iceberg that's kind of hiding beneath the water. So I think thinking about how you build your supply chain to be a strategic advantage to you as a company is a, is a huge unlock. And I think the importance of supply chain across organizations is something which is going to increase because we have such a breadth of, uh, we touch such a wide part of the overall process, the driving overall improvement, thinking about how we do things very differently, I think is a huge opportunity. And I, I kind of go back, I started my career uh, back in the UK, uh, working in factories uh, <coughs> years ago. And uh, I was one of the guys that actually was, was kind of picked up and moved offshore. And I, I was reflecting the other week when I was, uh, you know, I used to be a supervisor in, in the closing room and uh, the finishing room of a shoe factory. And uh, the head of sales used to walk into me and say, hey, we've got these goods, we need them in Bond Street tomorrow. Can you get them sent down to Bond Street? And uh, so I would organize it, make sure they got moved to the front of the line and shipped to Bond Street. I didn't have an ERP system. I didn't have all these other big systems and processes and everything else that kind of got in the way of me building that direct relationship with the retailer and direct relationship with the consumer. Uh, and I think one of the things that we've done is we've offshored a lot of this production is we've built this large infrastructure that exists that helps us manage that process. And I think that's taken a huge amount of our time. And if you think, we talk about lead times, but if you think about lead times, really, it really only takes a week to make a garment. Most of the rest of the time is us baffling around on how we're going to design it, what materials we're going to use and all the rest. You know, am I right? So if we can think about how we can actually take noise out of that process and get back to that much more immediate relationship, that's not to say we don't need systems and process and all the rest, but I think there's a huge unlock there, which we're only now starting to pick at because we've built this entire infrastructure around how do we support this mammoth of overseas manufacturing. I think Will Report rightly calls out the fact that there is that shift as we move forward. So it's an interesting time. Do you feel, you know, it's always been that when you speak to supply chain executives, and we, everyone in the room talks to each other, we're all kind of in agreement what you just said, the hurdles, and the hurdles are often within our own organization. So are you feeling now that the C-level management, whether it's the merchandisers, the designers, people are starting to listen to what the sourcing executives are saying, hey, money is made in the back of the office, days are dollars, and what you are doing is costing company a lot of money. Your inefficiencies. Are we starting to have as an as, as a as a you know as an entity within the organization a bigger voice? Excuse me. Hell yes. <laughs> because people are starting to realize that if we don't get that bit right, if we don't control our skew count, if we don't um, review the way in which we're, we're building skew proliferation, if we don't think about how we're man managing our minimums, if we don't think about how we're thinking about lead times, if we don't think about our tier two supplies, if we don't if we don't think about all those individual components. By the time it flows through the bottom of the PNL, it just doesn't work. And because because supply chain controls such an intimate, integral part of that, and the, the cost of goods that we're producing is probably 50% of most of our revenue, we've got to get that under control. And I think there's a realization now it isn't only just about the sexy part of sales, 
if you don't manage that bottom pass, that's where you really drive the value. So I think, yeah, there's certainly, a, I think there is a major change, and not just happening in our industry, but I think elsewhere, there's an appreciation of how supply chain can help unlock value for companies. I agree. I mean, from consulting is always a good symptom in terms of talking to us about these topics that we see much more CEOs and CFOs now approaching and saying, how do, what do I manage to not be late in the game? I know these are long-term investments. I don't want to be caught in an infrastructure that's actually behind the curve uh, that is too slow. And hence, it's not only the supply chain organization that's talking to us, but it's actually CEOs and CFOs, which I think is a good symptom of, yes, I think it, it's hell yes. Um, so um, I did not manage my time very well, and we are way over on this panel. So um, I want to thank everybody. We have one more panel, then we're going to go to break. So if you guys have any questions, please feel free to, to network and speak to everyone up here. I'm sure they'll be uh, welcoming your questions. Um, thank you again for thank doing you. this report and uh, all your support. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.